Hi, this is Tuni Vargatkins and this is episode 26 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast series from the Centre for Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool, where we share our light bulb moment, teaching props and pedagogies, as we cohabit our Treasure Island, the space for contact time with students. I have the pleasure of introducing three guests today, uh, Carrie Swartz, Evan Dickerson and Rebecca Wakelin. So can I ask each of you to briefly introduce yourself, your original discipline and your current role, please? Hello, yes, my name is Karis Watts. I'm based at Newcastle University, UK. My original discipline was microbiology by degree, and I moved around between biochemistry and genetics and then into management before abandoning the lab and moving into teaching. And I am now a senior lecturer in enterprise in the biosciences. Great. Yeah. I'm Evan Dickerson. I am a learning technologist at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. Uh, my original discipline was history of art, and I studied that undergrad level. And I then lectured in that for six years part-time before transitioning into a learning technology role, which I've held at a number of universities around London since 1999. So I'm, yeah, I've been in that role for quite some time, but I've been at the Guildhall School now for just over two years. Great. Thanks, Evan. And Rebecca? Hi, uh, my name is Rebecca Wakelin. I am currently an assistant professor of educational development at XJTLU in Suzhou, China. Very new role. I do come from Canada, where I have been an educational developer for 10 years and a teacher for 20 years. I started off teaching history and political science and then transitioned to some degrees in education and have been working in the education field ever since. Great to have you all on board. So we've got art, sciences, education, quite a nice mixture today. So can you, can I ask you to now think about a light bulb moment and share one of these with our listeners today? So this is where your students, wherever and whoever they may be, they were getting it. And what made this happen? Shall I dive in and go first then? Okay. So, um, coming from a science background, um, I found that by our very nature, we're quite quantitative and we look at process and we want to find a solution and we want to find the most direct route there. So teaching an enterprise, um, one of the things that I've had to encourage our students to think about is, is the value of failure which sounds terrifying to them, especially for high achieving students. So for me, it's the, the fail fast and change direction. And what are you learning and what are you changing? So encouraging the students to, to not just seek an answer, but taking that step back and doing divergent thinking. So, um, I encourage them to bounce their ideas off each other in our sessions. So sharing their ideas with a group and me standing back completely and just being a listener. Um, has been really, really valuable. Um, and they quite often change direction radically as a result of getting constructive feedback from their peers. So for me, it's the, it's the failing fast learn and change for them rather than the, we only need to get from A to B as swiftly as possible. Can I just ask on that, Kerry? So it sounds like quite a big shift from a way of thinking for students where, where you talked about that they are very solution oriented. They want to progress fast and. This, what you were suggesting would be that taking a step back and how, how do you make the, how do you make this happen for them? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. 
So an example I can give is I run the business enterprise for the bioscientist module and we, we put um, our students into small groups to work together. And initially the, the idea generation process is very alien to them and that they're, they're, they're used to being process driven, seeing a pathway through from start to finish or proposing a hypothesis and then testing that. Um, and if it doesn't work, maybe questioning why not, but it might be just varying a condition. So getting them to to look objectively at something and really really ask those questions puts them in the in the the hot seat of being able to both give and receive feedback rather than just being on the receiving end of feedback, which myself as a facilitator would would normally be. Um, and that it also, I suppose, one of the things is it builds confidence. That there, there isn't the issue of academia and student; it's peer to peer. So peer to peer is so. Is, it takes away the barriers, I suppose. It just makes it a bit more straightforward. There's no judgment. There's just, we're all in this together. So I think that's made a bit more of a community as well with my students. And I got some lovely feedback the other day. Oh, this is one of the most interesting modules I've studied and that we don't do lectures like we normally do. So moving away from that pure science has been, has been really helpful for them. Great. Anyone else? Evan or Rebecca? I can pitch in with my light bulb moment if you want. Um goes back to when I was lecturing in art history and uh, museum studies. And uh, yeah, I, I the traditional way of teaching in art history is really around, you know, being a group of students in a, in a lecture theatre with a, you know, couple of sets of projectors, projecting s slides and images of, you know, paintings or sculptures or whatever it might be you're you're discussing at that particular time onto a screen and of course everything is in that scenario it's the same size it's the same format you don't get a sense of the scale the impact the the three-dimensionality of a piece of sculpture for example so my pedagogic inspiration actually came from when i was a, a student at uh, the university of east anglia the uh, wonderful sainsbury center for visual arts there with the sainsbury's collection of artifacts and paintings and sculptures and things from all around the world that they they collected and actually being able to see and experience things up front you know in person directly you know there talking about it discussing it having those reflective uh, conversations and moments with with your professors and peers as well um but you know having that direct experience of that object at the particular time so when i graduated my first job it, a few weeks afterwards actually was to take students on a five week long traveling art history program around Europe. Sounds fun. It wasn't. Um, well, it was, it was just stressful. Um, all the logistics of that, but you know, and that's something I did every summer for, for six years. And I also taught a course on museums and galleries in London. And so I, I, again, I, I took students out into the settings and, you know, made them experience what it was like to go behind the scenes of, you know, the research and uh, restoration department of the British Museum, for example, or the, or the National Portrait Gallery, and, you know, have that hands-on flavour of what it's like to actually work in a, in a, that kind of context. Um, and that didn't get to everybody, but there are three former students I, I remember. Um, one is now the, the head of lighting at the Chicago Institute of Art um changed her major to art history from business one is um you know a very passionate art provenance researcher and 
third, uh, you know, is a curator of the art collection of the United Nations. I'm not saying I'm responsible for all three of those, but, you know, a little touch in, in there somewhere along the way uh, of that early sense of uh, experiencing things face-to-face -face and just being able to get that tangibility of an object, I think, is really crucial in that kind of discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds amazing as well, That where, where you know as well how your students progress to some of these, especially where they change direction, as Keris was talking about, you know, in this case, it's a sort of carry direction as well. Yeah. So you mentioned the inspiration for this came from your own experience and how that might work in, in our role as educators, or I don't know if anyone else, it resonates with any of you. I was going to say, I, uh, I'm actually really jealous of Evan because I always say if I could go back <laughs> and wipe my educational slate clean and start over again, I would take museum studies. <laughs> and so I'm a little bit <laughs> jealous that he's doing that. But I think uh, one thing when I'm working with faculty, I always say, and this is going to sound kind of terrible, but be the teacher you needed when you mm -hmm. were doing your undergrad. And again, my generation, I won't age myself in public, but when I went and did my undergrad, it was exactly how Paris described like the old way. So person standing at the front with a PhD, hundreds of students sort of you didn't ask your professor anything you didn't talk you just sat there and you know absorbed the information by osmosis and i think anybody of that generation um seemed to do the opposite now um either just by by learning or just because of that experience and so i think if you if you focus purposefully on being the teacher that you needed you know, and it and by Evan's example, obviously he was because his students went on to do great things. Yeah, that's that's so true. And thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, that's really an, a good thought there. Do you want to tell us your light bulb moments or one of them, probably one of the many? One of the many. Um, so I, as I mentioned, for your student, yeah. for my students, yeah. As I mentioned, I've taught um, subjects that can be kind of spicy. So I've taught political science history and now education and i'm going to add that one to the list and i'll explain why where students or learners are often confronted with ideas that make them uncomfortable for lots of different reasons politics is pretty obvious right so you know you're coming to class with a whole bunch of preconceived notions about the way the world works and the way government works so on and so forth history is the same um and education is pretty similar in that I work with professors who, you know, have many, many years of practice experience, have been teaching for a long time and giving them new ideas that make them uncomfortable or would make them think about changing their practice or even just reflecting on the way they're doing things can be quite uncomfortable. And early on in my career, I would often have students who would, um, sort of fight back against the ideas like no I don't I don't agree with that I don't believe in that that's not something that's in my belief system and there was a lot of struggle and you could see the struggle in them it was always those students who you know constantly put their hand up and constantly disagreed with what you said constantly picking apart what you said and in the beginning of my career I kind of got a bit annoyed not outwardly but inwardly I was annoyed and I thought can't you just listen why do you have to keep challenging me every five minutes? You know, 
Yep. But I had an interesting teaching when I was, uh, I worked at, for a school of Indigenous studies and I had an Indigenous elder in Canada tell me, did you ever think maybe that's where the learning is happening? The struggle in a lot of Indigenous cultures is where is the moment in which the learning is happening. And I always thought, you know, the learning happened afterwards and the reflection or whatever. But but she told me that when students are struggling with a concept, it means they're learning. And so that was a light bulb moment for me because I still get that. Um, I work with great professors and sometimes I will challenge their ideas and challenge their conceptualizations of education and teaching and they'll push back on it. And I no longer get annoyed. Instead, I kind of feel, you know, a light bulb goes off in my head and I think they're learning, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And I tell they are too, because they'll email me afterwards and say, you know, sorry, I was so vocal during your session. And I say, no, 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 that was good. That was really good. And they'll say, you know, I've been thinking about those ideas that you presented and I, I want to try them or I don't want to try them ever. And that's okay too. But I think the light bulb moment for me is, is sort of allow that struggle to happen and don't be afraid of it. It's not a behavior thing. It is actually learning in the moment. Mm -hmm. So Carrie Sanevan was nodding a lot. So do you want to add anything on this? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And thinking about the cohorts that I've worked with and the, the dynamics between the, the quiet students to the very vocal ones, the value of the vocal ones is that they're saying something that the quiet ones are thinking, but not saying and not brave enough to say, and are actually really grateful that someone's actually raising that there and then. So understanding where people's values are based and then questioning those allows like you said allows them to develop and go back and go but why did I think this in the first place and and where does this take me to in the future so I think yeah good for you with your spicy subjects I love that idea I mean it's great <laughs> one wouldn't think educational theory is necessarily spicy but <laughs> oh it is it is oh yes oh yes I, I think in some respects I, I fight a similar battle trying to convince what I would consider traditional science academics of the value of enterprise. But I would say, well, the value of enterprise is realizing that it's more than just the bench science. It's thinking, well, where does this go next? What is the next development? What's the next iteration? And I suppose it's akin to, to speaking to a computer scientist and saying, you know, so this AI thing, what's, what's this all about? And, you know, 18 months ago, would we even have conceived this? So questioning our values and where we're going, yeah, absolutely vital. Yes. And of course, as a learning technologist, everything I do professionally really um, challenges and changes potentially the way the people I work with and collaborate with as academics and also students, uh, you know, the way they do things, the way they deliver um, teaching and learning assessments, um, the very nature of assessment we've, we've all had to rethink, haven't we necessarily because of AI recently and, you know, what we're doing around assessment and just to use that as an example, um, you know, do we, do we encourage the use of AI? Do we not, do we allow it, but, uh, you know, say it has to be you know, acknowledged to a certain point and then beyond which there has to be some evidence of the student's own learning, um, as, as part of an assessment that's, um, you know, created and, and submitted and all that kind of thing. But, you know, essentially everything I do, every time I walk into a room with, with people, 
I mean, I, I had somebody at a place I uh, worked at once where he went, oh, here comes trouble. <laughs> He's learning. That was his standard reaction to me. It was like, oh dear, right, now what am I going to have to change this time? But, you know, it was, and he was quite often, as you were saying, Rebecca, he was the vocal one in that group. Uh, but, you know, he would go away and he'd go, go away with a bit of a grump on his face. <laughs> but, you know, a while later he'd come back and go, you know what we need to do about this thing is we need to do it in that way. And I went, I told you. I just told you. you you've got it. Right. You know, it's finally not only being absorbed and being processed, but being accepted as a, as a thing, as a way to at least try and experiment with and just accept failure as well. You know, that not everything is going to work first time. You know, there are any number of permutations of things that can, can affect how a, a particular, um, you know, online activity works, for example. It could mm -hmm. de depend on the cohort, could depend on, you know, the teaching staff at that particular time, you know, who's collaborating on it, you know, how much preparation's gone into it, all kinds of things. But, you know, just accept that you give it a go, see how it works, you come back to it, you refine it, you try it again, you go, okay, well, that idea didn't really work that well, let's try it this way instead. So it's, a, it's that process of continual, you know, reflection, revision, you know, reenactions. And can I ask, what is your connection, all three of you, the connection point for the quiet ones? So we mentioned about the vocal ones verbalizing their challenges and the thought processes. And how do you pay attention or notice the quiet ones? And if they are asking them maybe the same questions or, you know what I mean? So I, I, I started developing a kind of not a set of rules, but a set of guidelines for, for working in peer groups. And it was the concept of equal time and equal sharing and using a circle to basically move around. And if, if people didn't have anything to add vocally, they could, they could keep a, um, a communal notebook going. Um, and one of the things that I, I will mention is I'd like to get things on paper. And I know that sounds very retro. But the reason that I like to do that is the eye contact issue is that the getting people to have the confidence to make eye contact and to talk to each other. Um, and, and especially here at Newcastle, we have a cohort of students that joins us in final year from Malaysia and being dropped into final year where people have already got their social groups is, is quite intimidating, but actually building this group dynamic has really, really helped and really, um, encouraged that ethos of we are a team. Um, and got everybody speaking. So that's really helped. That's what I do. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, particularly online learning, you get used to the concept of lurkers and people who just kind of read things, don't necessarily say things um, or contribute to forums or whatever it is. If you go back, you know, when forums were a thing, like the thing. Um, but, you know, I think it's a question of, because from, from my point of view, it's a question of knowing who should be involved in those conversations and having continual touch points with them throughout the year and making sure that, you know, it's not just the loudest voices that hold the sway of, of a conversation and completely steer a journey pedagogically, but, you know, because not everybody knows everything and it's a team effort. Um, so it's a question of making sure that the quieter voices are somehow 
you know, brought into the conversation, involved, you know, and it could be that, you know, there are only particular points in the creation of something that they want to be involved with, or that's where their particular expertise lies. But, you know, it's knowing that thing and knowing the appropriate point and, you know, so making sure that they're all involved and valued in, in some way, I think is, is a crucial thing. Yeah. And I, I'm always very clear to tell the quiet ones that too, because I don't think anything strikes fear in the heart of a student more than, oh, that's the teacher that randomly calls on people to answer. And I'm, you know, I'd rather melt into a puddle than actually talk in class. Um, so I like that idea of, number one, I always, always never get people to speak independently. It's always in a pair, in a triad, in a group. And I, you know, and I'm a very, um, I make fun of the loud people because I'm one of them. And I'll say, you know, I'm going to put you in a group of three because I know there's always one loud person. I'm always that person. But I want, you know, the quieter people to give the loud person some ideas and they will be the conduit through which it's shared. And my thing has always been, so I worked in a, a two-year um, community college, we term you're probably familiar with, um, yep. in Canada where you know, it wasn't a long four-year undergraduate degree. It was two years and then they're out in industry working. So it was really important for me to ensure that I'm developing some of those workplace skills early, often, all the time. And one of them is if you are by nature just a quieter person, uh, which the world needs, we need the thinkers, the people that, you know, measure twice, cut once. Um, and that's a very good trait to have, but you need to learn how to ensure that your voice is heard in your future company or your workplace or your job site or whatever. And there's many different ways to do that. And, you know, one of it is through personal networking. So if you have really great ideas, but there's a really loud person in the room, your really great ideas may never see the light of day. However, if you have really good networking skills and good, you know, high emotional intelligence and you can talk to the loud people and say, you know, this is a great idea that I'm, I'm too scared to say to the boss or whatever, or good writing skills or whatever. So I find it's, you know, creating those opportunities for students who are quieter to, to learn some of those skills that isn't necessarily public speaking, but is still making their voice heard just in a different way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. That's brilliant. Right. So let's move on to teaching props and pedagogies. So we are going to our students and uh, to our treasure island where we spend special contact time with them. So as you all said, with some active learning and, and um, challenging them, letting them, making them fail so they can move on and have other, accept other ideas. So what are the, what teaching props or pedagogies would you bring to this island with the students? I think the thing I found the most effective that I would, I would probably, I actually do carry it with me everywhere, but in a smaller format, I always have a pencil case and a notepad with me wherever I go and I apply the same with, with my students. So if I want to have a really rich idea generation discursive session with them, I'm going to take huge pieces of paper and an A3 plus, I'm going to take pens, colored pens, colored pencils, and make sure that I'd be on the beach if it was a real island I, I would have space i wouldn't be in a in a um lecture theater i'd be on the floor and when i have been scheduled in lecture theaters i've said use the floor come and use the floor instead and they'd really enjoy that just the the sitting around um enjoying the fruit as well i do actually bring fruit to my sessions as well because <laughs> i find it helps them, especially the nine o'clock um 
So yeah, getting them to work on paper, generate something. Again, it brings the eye contact in, it allows that rich um, discussion to take place. And I just facilitate by wandering around. And so at the start of the session, I'd, I'd say, we're not using slides today. You don't need to look at that. You can close your laptops. The only time you'll need that is when you're taking notes that you want to carry forward. There's nothing that you need to understand. You just need to develop today. So it's them. It's then over to them to ask the questions and speak to each other. And actually, a two-hour session can absolutely fly by. So for me, it's going to be my huge pieces of paper and my pens. And if I'm allowed, I take my Lego as well, just because it provides a nice distraction. So that's me. Great. So it's a lot more than a piece of paper and pen. There's a lot more around this. So there's a lot more unpacked. Yeah, it. yeah. But it's, it's, <laughs> you can use it in any environment, so it's great. Yeah, brilliant. Any others thought on our island? Yes. Um, while you were speaking there, Karis, I just had had a reflection. One of the the things I personally do is I always have a little notebook on me, um, which I I tie to my belt, and that's a trick I I blatantly stole from Leonardo da Vinci. Um, why not? If it worked for him, it could work for me as well. Just yeah, um, right. If you if you need to just note some ideas down on the go, if things occur to you, do it. You know, he did. He did all right. Yeah, he did all right. <laughs> exactly. He knew a thing or two. Um, but you know, hey. Um, so my two things would be um, kind of. I've talked a bit about experiential learning already, but also reflection as a pedagogic tool. Um, and I think if I think about the creative disciplines, particularly as a practicing uh, artist, musician, actor, whatever role you're having, you never really stop learning and developing in your evolution and your personal development. You're constantly exposed to new sources and new stimuli. You're you know, reacting to a new play text, you're having to perform or a new music score, you're having to to practice and you know, get ready for a public performance or you're collaborating with a new set of actors or directors or musicians or conductors or set designers or whoever it might be. But you're constantly bringing what you already know, your own prior experience of the world. And, you know, this can be just outside of, you know... Um, thinking about learning to become a practicing actor. Uh, but, you know, what your life experience is like um, and what you have gone through, how you can bring that experience to that role or that's, that set of things you've got to react to. Um, and it's a constant act, so I think, of reflecting, learning and growing. It's that constant cycle. Um, I've had the great opportunity to sit down with some some wonderful musicians over the years um and talk to them about how they they learn a piece of music um or what they or the process they go through and a few of them have said to me uh i don't actually sing a note until i really have to a lot of it is just working from the score looking at the text i have to sing seeing how the music works with the words, marrying them together, seeing how I, what I feel I could bring to that combination um, and what resonates with that person there and then, and obviously discussing with their 
collaborator, maybe the accompanying pianist or whoever it might be, how that's going to work, how you can make that work. And I think, um, so you're constantly having your views and your conceptions and your identity challenged, I think. And of course, for me as a learning technologist, the challenge is really for an academic point of view is enabling the students to evidence that online somehow. Um, cause you know, I think of all our, our academic programs, they have large elements of reflective practice built into them. So how do we do that in an authentic way? Um, but it's also reflects them as an individual, but, uh, it's not just a kind of bland account of, you know, okay, so this week I'm preparing performance of X and, uh, and this is what I, I went through, but you know, trying to get under the skin of, uh, that process of reflection so that it really means something and is evident for them as well. Um, how would we visualize this as we're rowing? So as Carrie said, we are on the beach with the fruits, uh, with coconuts and the students are working with pen and paper in groups with you. Mm. If you started talking about individual reflection and how people would bring their own, um, identity, their experience to that. So I can, I almost like imagine them rowing over to the island in this bubble, mm. which is like their experience as they come and arrive, but then you also get them to reflect with each other. So perhaps their bubbles meet and mm -hmm. get shaped and things like, so I was just trying to visualize where we would put them on the island, how, how that might look like that space where they're doing this. So peer to peer collaboration, I think is a key thing. Uh, you know, external stimuli, being able to reference those, being able to, you know, maybe as part of the reflection, you know, pinpoint sources or other, other performances or other things that they've, they've gone off and, and picked up on that they think actually, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, this soliloquy, for example, and it seems to have this kind of resonance with me as a performer. Uh, and I've thought back to something else I've. I've heard or I've seen, you know, and bringing that in, being able to reference that as, as something they've thought about in relation to what they're producing. Um, but you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a constant cycle, I think, but it's, it's one of those things where it's making tangible, the kind of internal journey that somebody necessarily goes through in order to develop themselves as a, as a, you know, a confident, uh, performer who's ready to go out there and, you know, rock the stage and whatever they're, they're doing. Great. That's really interesting. Um, I've done a bit about value creation and one of my colleagues in, in music, um, when we were discussing about confidence and it's that confidence to be able to share what you're doing and that bravery to be able to say, this is mine, this is me, hmm. find my value and that the value only comes about when it's actually shared. It's, it's, it's an inherent value, but it needs, it needs to be explicit and out there Absolutely. and to be critiqued which is quite a scary thing to do isn't it yes it is as a music critic yes it is yeah and i guess that's part of the process because when that sharing happens and then as keris you were talking about peer-to-peer -peer feedback as well having that as essential part for each for each parties to learn from in that sense yeah mm -hmm. you know Definitely. Great. I mean, that's, yeah, that's already two rich experiences on the island. Rebecca, what's your teaching proper pedagogy? So the one I actually, um, had thought about 
was uh, Karis. It, it, her idea, I was actually going to say paper and markers because I love manipulatives that you can use with your fingers. So while she was talking, I was quickly making a plan B. What says teaching more than that, right? <laughs> Thinking on your feet. Um, so I guess my second prop then, this may come up after we do some bartering because I may take her paper from her. But um, so I think my second thing that I would bring is storytelling. I am a fan of storytelling in the classroom. I myself dabble in writing and take a lot of uh, writing courses and read a lot about writing. And I, you know, and I, the idea of storytelling as something that humans have been doing for millennia, um, I don't know how long, but forever, as a way to, you know, teach lessons or give information, pass down things. And I find not only storytelling as a teacher, but modeling how to storytell for the students as well. Because again, no matter what industry or career they're going to get into, whether it be academia or, you know, working as biologist or whatever, storytelling is going to be, you know, part of what they're going to do. And so I am always telling stories and I always try to connect in writing. You're always trying to connect with the higher emotion of whatever the story is, right? So you know, if you're reading Lord of the Rings, like you may not be experiencing exactly all the things that are happening, but what you're connecting with is that emotion, that human feeling of whatever it is, right? Whether it be frustration or happiness or joy or whatever. So I'm always trying to connect with people with stories, um, not just trench stories. I do tell a lot of trench stories. So um, recently I, I was talking to a group of professors and we were talking about classroom management and I said, you know, nothing prepared me for classroom management than my first day teaching high school and a student like threw a desk at me because that's what high school I do. I know. And I was, I was trying to explain how I felt about that. And afterwards she said, I was so shocked that you told that story. And I said, why? It's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's just what happens when, you know, you're teaching secondary school. But, you know, she connected with that because I said, oh, I felt like such a failure. And, and she says, you know, I feel like that every day as a professor. And I thought, interesting, like, you know, you didn't experience that exact thing, thank goodness. Um, but that human emotion is still there. And so I tell stories, I get my students to tell stories. Um, I also find it's a lot more of a relaxing genre, I guess we'll say, as opposed to saying, you know, um, what's the answer, you know, and students are like deer in the headlight. If you can say, you know, let's tell a story about this imaginary person named John who is is dealing with this situation, what should he do? And then we can tell stories through the eyes of somebody else. So I think I would bring storytelling to the island if for nothing else, it would keep us entertained. Um, I'm assuming we're waiting for rescue. I don't know, but I would definitely use storytelling. We are having learn, we're having fun learning on the island. I think that's the treasure islands. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, sounds definitely great. storytelling. It'll be happier stories in that case. Or being challenged as we learn, as we, we've discussed today. So that's brilliant. And well done, Rebecca, for quickly thinking on your feet, although there's nothing wrong with using the same prop for different sure. um, things. I mean, I guess that. In, in a sense, that would have been an, a, a great task as well. If you all chosen pa paper and pen, which Evan already connected with, and what would you have done? And I'm sure everyone else would have had a different story. Okay, so 
we've got um, paper and pen, reflective learning, um, storytelling on the island, and then obviously uh, your light bulb moments as well can can give us some thoughts here. But is there anything you would like to barter with each other, as Rebecca you said, or anything that we could still bring to the island that we feel, oh, that would be great to add in the mix of the things that we've already mentioned? I'd happily um, swap with Rebecca. So I, I used I used to, I mean, just because I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I do that. Um, so when, when I have my first class of the year, one of the first things I do on, on the first slide after the, you know, this is this is the session, is that this is me. And it's a little bit about my background. And absolutely, you know, I, I tell them the number of times I failed my driving test. I tell them about something that didn't go well, something that I'm really proud of. Um, and bringing that lived experience in and the vignette. Um, and it, it comes back to another light bulb moment that suddenly occurred to me is some years you see the eyes go down and, and they're not paying attention. They're on something on the laptops because they don't use paper. But this year they were still and they were they were looking at me and it really struck me. I thought, oh my goodness, they're doing it. They're doing the learning. <laughs> and it's because this is the first year. So so we, we normally put any slides we use up on canvas are really in advance so the students have got them i'm very clear to them i'm putting a condensed slide deck on there so they know the bones of it but they don't get the full thing and i think that's really helped because then the vignettes and the storytelling goes in between and it acts it acts like a progressive ladder for them so yeah. and yeah. then from that that gives them the confidence that they can use their own lived experience and bring that in and they won't be judged and the reason that we're doing it is so that we can learn from each other. So I'd be happy to swap, swap my pens and paper. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to take your pens and paper, but I'm going to add scissors and there is a reason. So as much as I like writing on paper, I also like cutting paper into movable shapes. Let me explain. So again, um, if I taught math, I would use so many things, you know, base 10 blocks that you could manipulate. Legos are good. But what I really, really like is I'll take concepts and I'll cut them out. So it's just the concept like um, political concepts like left wing ideology, right wing ideology, and I'll cut them out and then I'll draw like a big chart or table on a piece of paper or on the board. And then they have to take these little pieces of paper and put them under whatever category I have identified. And so, you know, I'll say, you know, social policy, blah, 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 and then they'll, and they'll do it. And it's, it's hilarious. And I still do it with professors to this day. I'll say, you know, um, here's an educational theory. Here's an educational theory. Here are some instructional strategies. What theory would you say these strategies fall under? And they love it. Just taking little pieces of paper that I've cut and like taping them to paper is, is so great yeah. and then what i'll do um i like to create a little bit of competition so what i'll do is i'll get them to compare their paper and somebody else's paper and then we play a game called i'm right and you're wrong and i'm going to explain why so if a different group has uh one of their little pieces of paper on a different category they have to explain why they're right and the other group is wrong and they have to do that and it works so great um so I'm going to bring scissors because I need scissors to make my little pieces of paper that people can use. To scissors and paper, I, I would add post-it notes. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a learning technologist, okay? Um, 
sorry, I love paper and scissors and pens and crayons and everything else as well. And um, my second master's was in educational policy. Really dull, I know. Somebody had to, me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was studying it a few years ago and I was looking at, you know, the growth of marketization in the UK, UK higher education sector. And I was kind of charting its development and, you know, the influences and all that kind of thing. So I, I, I basically ended up with my thesis being like this massive wall chart that, you know, had influences in the main policy themes and everything and, you know, um, you know, statutory input and, you know, all this kind of stuff mapped out on, on a massive piece of paper across my, my bedroom wall at the time. Um, and then of course, analyzing the situation at the particular time where I thought it might go, what the potential directions of travel were, all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, you, you, you can't get away from using the physical, the tangible. And I think one of the great things, like you were saying, Rebecca, it, is it does very quickly enable you to um, kind of go, okay, this is what I think. This is my conception of it. Actually, step back from it. Am I right? Am I, you know, or does that actually hold water, you know? Um, and then by looking at it and go, no, actually, that's in the wrong place. As you were saying, that, that doesn't quite fit. It's not, you know, it's like putting a piece of a jigsaw in the wrong bit. You don't quite get the right picture, but, yeah. you know, enables you to quickly go, no, it doesn't go there. It goes here instead. Um, you know, or reconfigure your understanding of a concept or whatever it might be, or, you know, and it, it, you can use that in any kind of scenario. And, um, I've done it with senior management when they're thinking around, you know, how they're going to take this conceptual idea and, and enact it in terms of, you know, delivery at university level and all that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, I think it's something that holds water in a lot of, uh, different kind of contexts at levels of an institution, uh, you know, not only thinking about educational development, but, you know, can be all kinds of things really. So it's, it's one of those essential tools of what we do. For me, it just links back to Keris where we started off about talking about change, changing conceptions. So the modality of movement and as Rebecca, you were explaining about the scissors and moving ideas from one side to the other, or people changing their minds, but then following that up with that movement of moving the post-its or moving things that it just really almost like tangibly directly embodies that sort of change in what we were talking about at the beginning. Indeed. I also wanted to point out that Evan did a bit of storytelling when he was talking about how he was mapping out a thesis. So, you know, a little bit of barter yeah, yeah. there. We, we've all, all, I think you've all incorporated all of your ideas, which is lovely. It's uh, truly an islands of um, many pedagogies and props coming together in Mongo and you've all exemplified it with all of them, which is brilliant. So you've done a lot of work. We now need to relax or you, well, you need to relax from having done all the work. What luxury items would you choose to on the island, which is for it? It's for you, so not to work, but to relax off duty. Um, it has to be my running trainers. Um, I, I just love just getting out there, seeing different places, different things, whether it's running with people or by myself. Um, I, I worked this Saturday and it was twilight when I finished and I thought, oh, got to get outside. So um, the River Tyne 
runs through Newcastle. So we went for a twilight run along there. And I saw bubbles in the river and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's an otter. And I followed them and I waited and I was patient and it was. And I saw an otter and it was gorgeous. So it's the little things like that that just takes you out of your, you know, your zone of work, 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 release. So for me, it's just running trainers. And you were not listening, but watching intently because who else might may others might may not have noticed that bubble and so yeah. well i always i always hope and i live in hope <laughs> well done lovely image yes uh my thing would be actually the act of writing itself um probably because I, I do a lot of writing for work but also outside work i mean you know i've just finished a, a book chapter on the skill sets of a learning technologist for example that's that's one kind of writing that's that's the kind of thing that you you do because it's like it looks good on the cv and everything else and da 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 da, da. but you know i write a lot about music as well i've been a music critic in my spare time for 20 odd years um yeah and now some of the people i work with i've actually reviewed in the past which is hmm, interesting let's put it like that and um so yeah i i spend a lot of time thinking about music listening to music i've got a collection of over seventy-five thousand cds don't ask me how i got that many uh but i've reviewed a lot of them over the time um i use those as a tool to research and write about pieces of music when i'm doing writing about concert program notes and things like that but i i also secretly i think this is the first time i've told anybody about this um drum roll, drum roll. i've been writing a spy novel for the past five years and occasionally it's never going to see the light of day don't worry it's not john le carré or anything like but it's just for me to just kind of like right writing about something completely different completely thinking around a different world a different place a different time a different set of people creating different characters you know, different sets of interactions. Um, yeah, and no one's ever going to read it, hopefully. That's exciting. But... Never say never. And I think as as educators here, we all need to encourage you to to follow your dream and, yeah, get that published. Maybe. We'll yeah, okay. <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Thanks for sharing. We feel very privileged to hear about it for the first time from you. Rebecca, what's your luxury item relaxing um this is ironic but it's actually podcasts i am a tired woman so i have children i have a job i have lots of things going on and so in order for me to enjoy content it has to be forced into my head with headphones or else i won't i won't read it so I think, um, especially working in academic circles, you know, you're constantly reading all day long. The last thing I want to do, um, I would read Evan's novel if it came out, but the last thing I want to do is come home and read something. I know that sounds awful, but podcasts are just a great way for me to get passively get content without having to put a lot of effort into it. So I listen to podcasts on the bus, on the way to work. I listen to podcasts while I'm cleaning. I listen to podcasts while I'm on airplanes and I close my eyes and people think I'm sleeping, but I'm not. I'm listening to podcasts, but nobody talks to me. Um, I'm just listening and I listen to a whole bunch of different podcasts. I like to listen to 
things that I'm interested in. I like to listen to things that challenge my thinking. Um, this might actually relate to work. I apologize. But I also like to be able to sound really well read when I quote somebody <laughs> while I'm teaching. But really, I just heard it on a podcast. But nobody knows that, right? I'll say, oh, so-and-so said this and, you know, really was on the podcast. But that's okay. Um, so I find podcasting, just listening to it, very relaxing. Um, and so I'm really honored to be on a podcast. Yay. Yeah, and great to have you, uh, Rebecca, on this. And yeah, that uh, very apt is what I mean, uh, obviously, for the podcast. But I hope you can share some of your favorite podcasts with us as well um, on the on the blog. Absolutely. Which, which we might, yeah. So um, thank you all very much. I think it's time to sail away now to our treasure islands together. And it will be a great experience there, as we have all heard all all um bit busy uh, teaching as well as relaxing it sounds like you're all very active uh, as well when you relax so thanks everyone for listening especially our our listeners and obviously if you enjoy the episode you can subscribe to our podcast to join as a guest you can um, enroll on our expression of interest from on our liverpool uni ci podcast site uh, where you can also access the blog post of our episodes so goodbye for now. And finally, a big thank you to our guest today. Goodbye. Thank Goodbye. you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.